Hello, I'm Ken, and this is Teach Medieval. And on today's episode, I am very excited indeed to be welcoming back Associate Professor Nicholas Morton. Hello, Nick. Hi, Ken. It's nice to be here. Nicholas is Associate Professor of History at Nottingham Trent University, the co-editor of the Military Religious Orders book series and the author of several superb texts on the Crusades, including The Crusader States and Their Neighbours, A Military History, 1099 to 1187, and Encountering Islam on the First Crusade. Now, before we begin, I do want to take a second to remind you that this episode is actually episode two of a larger mini-series of three on the topic of Urban II and the First Crusade. So if you haven't listened to episode one yet, please go and do so now, and then come back and rejoin us here when you're ready. So, now that we've got that bit out of the way, Nick, let's begin, shall we? Absolutely. Right, so Nick, the topic for this second episode is Urban's personal political ambition. Uh, but before we get into why this ambition may have inspired him to call his crusade, why don't we take a second to look at the context from which Urban emerged? Because if I'm not mistaken, Nick, Urban was a passionate advocate of the so-called papal reform movement. Um, what was this movement? Uh, from where had it emerged uh, and why? Okay, so towards the end of the 10th century, early 11th century, there is a growing consensus in the church that in previous centuries, the church has lost too much of its authority. Yes. Various reasons for that, infighting, particularly in the Italian peninsula, but also external invasions into Western Christendom, making it hard for the church to communicate between its various regions. And within that, a growing power of secular rulers, so kings, German emperor, dukes, counts, etc., over the various members of the church. And a particularly sore point was secular rulers who tried to appoint their own clergy. Mm -hmm. So a king might try and appoint an archbishop or a bishop, and the church felt very strongly that only the church should appoint its own officials. And so it was seen to be a serious problem that kings would try to do that too. Yes, But because bishoprics and archbishoprics were important, not just from a spiritual perspective, but also from an economic and even in some cases a military perspective, kings weren't going to yield that right easily. And so you have the beginning of what's called the investiture controversy, yes, which is a key part of the reform movement. The tussling between secular rulers and the church over who gets to invest or appoint bishops, archbishops, people like that. Mm -hmm. There's also a real desire to try and make sure that what is seen as clerical abuses, so wrongdoings within the clergy, that they are addressed in a very forceful manner. Yes. The particularly sort of the hot issues of the day are things like the selling of church offices. So rather than someone being appointed to a church office because they're suited to that position, they're getting that office because they're, they've, they've bought it. That seemed to be a particular evil. Another one is the idea that churchmen um, is clerical marriage. So priests who have married, that is also seen as a big problem at this time. So there is a desire 
at this time um, within the church to very much tighten up its moral regulations and to reassert its authority over church appointments particularly, but even among more ambitious um, popes, over secular rulers as well, reminding them that papacy should have predominance over the crowned heads of Western Christendom. Okay, yeah, thank you. So let's look at this desire for uh, increased authority uh, and these perhaps secret or not so secret uh, political motivations that Urban may have had. Um, We're going to divide this conversation just like last time into two halves, Nick, if we can. Firstly, I'd like us to discuss the evidence one might put forward if we're going to argue that Urban's political motivations really were the main reason he called his crusade. And then once that's done, we'll turn those tables again and ask ourselves whether or not there are any reasons to question that motivation. Right. So here we go. Let's consider the evidence in favour. Firstly, let's look at Urban's um, actions within the church. At the start of his pontificate, was Urban the only man claiming to be Pope? Uh, And did he meekly accept this situation or try to sort it out? So the main line of conflict for the papacy um, at the time when Urban became Pope in 1088 is the ongoing rumbling dispute with the Empire and the German Emperor Mm -hmm. over the issue of investiture, which basically became a struggle over the demarcation of power between the German emperor and the papacy in general. Yes. And one of the empire's ways of advancing its own interests was to appoint anti-popes, who would therefore act as rivals to the popes, in this case, Urban II. And so there's a rival pope called Clement, and Urban spent, spent his pontificate under the threat of this rival pope being used to replace him. Mm-hmm. So yes, he does. his position is precarious. Yeah. And so moving to assert his supremacy over this uh, rival would do his legitimacy the world of good, wouldn't it? You could say that it was in his interests, although, again, that's based on us making a sort of needs based assessment of him. <laughs> yeah, certainly he moved to try and assert his own primacy. But we have to be careful as well that we don't judge him too much by his circumstances. We have to be, be aware that we don't have much from him himself. Mm-hmm. And so am I right in thinking that he does manage to expel Clement from Rome and does manage at some point eventually in the early 1090s to get himself into the Lateran Palace? Yes, he's reasonably successful um, as the 1090s go on, and certainly he's able to get to the end of his pontificate without being replaced. Mm -hmm. Let's move to 1095 then, uh, and this year-long tour of France. Is it possible for us to sit here and maybe interpret this as, uh, you know, the ultimate manifestation of political ambition? I mean, is is this a 15, 16-month piece of political theatre? Because Urban takes deliberate measures, doesn't he, to maximise his impact as he moves around, choosing very carefully where he's going to go to and when he's going to arrive. There can be no doubt that Urban touring France was designed to promote a papal agenda. Mm-hmm. The question is, which up which agenda was uppermost in his mind? Yes. Was he touring France because he wanted to launch and advocate for the crusade? Possibly. Was he trying to make sure that an already growing movement, mass movement that would become the Crusade, was more firmly under his control. I'm, I, I, have a, I have a feminist scepticism about how much control Urban actually had over the launch of the Crusade, or at least once it got started, how much control he had over it. Was he trying to make sure that he did have control? Or was he trying to ensure that he had control, even if, in fact, his level of control was fairly slight? Possibly. Was he trying to galvanise support against an anti-Pope via the process? of raising what would become the First Crusade, possibly? Was he trying to use his influence in France to try and end infighting? Again, possibly. Mm-hmm. 
Now, it's very hard to know which of those agendas was uppermost in his mind, or perhaps it was just a more generic desire to sort of continue the work of reform, or perhaps a mixture of all of them. Yeah. Because his actions in touring France would actually serve all of those agendas, and we don't know which one's uppermost. Yeah, exactly. So again, it's difficult. Which of those agendas, or all of them, mm-hmm. which one was uppermost in his mind? And you hinted um, last episode at the fact that in 1074, somebody else had tried to launch a crusade and failed. So is this, you know, if one was being cynical enough, is this another reason why Urban might have uh, seized Alexios's appeal and used it as an opportunity to do something that this time turned out to be successful? Possibly. In many ways, in terms of the appeal, uh, Gregory VII was probably working with a stronger sense of need and a stronger appeal in 1074 than Urban was in 1095. Mm-hmm. There were lots of problems um, in Anatolia for the Byzantine Empire in the 1070s, having just lost the Battle of Manzikert yes. against the Seljuk Sultan Alpazlan. There's also the um, Seljuk incursions into the Near East, also into the Jerusalem area, which may also have caused a great deal of concern, probably more so than in 1095 and yet Gregory's attempt to raise was it a holy was it a crusade was it a holy war certainly some kind of spiritual military expedition to Jerusalem Mm -hmm. certainly he probably had more to support that kind of ambition in 1074 than Urban did later on yeah but I think also I think Gregory's expedition also makes a very important point which is that we know with the benefit of hindsight that Urban's attempts to launch or to encourage what would become the First Crusade were successful. Yes. And therefore, it is easy to judge the Crusade in light of the fact that, and by successful, I mean it achieved it achieved Urban's objectives, it achieved its military targets. Mm-hmm. I think it needs to be factored into the equation just how unlikely, just how wildly unlikely that was. Yeah. Because for Urban to be successful in his ambitions he would need to either encourage or stimulate an enormous mass movement of a size that no one had ever seen before, or at least not for centuries. That mass movement would then have to coalesce into a fighting force capable of crossing into the Byzantine Empire, Mm -hmm. negotiating its passage across the Byzantine Empire, and ideally supporting it, then crossing the Anatolian Seljuk um, ruled Anatolia, then crossing into northern Syria, fighting every single army sent against it, and by every army sent against it, I mean every army sent by the Seljuk Sultanate, which is arguably one of the most effective fighting forces anywhere in Western Eurasia of this era. Yep. They're taking and holding Jerusalem, which is not a coastal city, so it can't be resupplied easily by sea, and then maintaining that control in the long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that when we think about Urban's motives, we have to be aware not just of what he stood to gain from the successful outcome of the crusade, but also the risk he was running. Because if we turn things round, what if the 99% chance had come to being that the crusade had failed? How would that look for him then? Yeah. And so I think it's very easy to judge the crusade in light of the fact that it did achieve its targets. But actually, that could not have been easily predicted at the time. And so the risk Urban was running was just enormous. It's almost bizarre that someone would take such a risk, the fact that it paid off for him is a different question. Yeah, absolutely. What a superb point. Calling this crusade, if he was in fact the one to do so, uh, was a huge, huge gamble, wasn't it? He was putting everything on the line. His entire reputation, his status, his authority, uh, his, his legacy. 
It could have blown up spectacularly in his face. And yet he still called it. Is that the action of an ambitious man? Determined to manifest his secular supremacy over the lords and knights and peoples of Europe? Or is it the action of a devout man? Determined to reclaim Christ's patrimony in the East for the benefit of all Christians? Uh, We'll leave that one up to you, dear listener. Uh, But for now, let's move on to Urban's relationships with the secular leaders of Western Europe. The counts and the dukes and the kings and the emperors. Had Urban sought to direct lay leaders before Clermont? Um, what's, you know, in what sorts of ways can we see him trying to dictate knightly behaviour uh, before his call to crusade? It's been a growing trend in the papacy for many decades. By the time of the first crusade, the papacy's desire not just to control its own institution, but to exert a degree of influence or control over secular rulers. Mm-hmm. When William I of Normandy invaded England, and famously in 1066, he did so with a papal banner. And so even that demonstrates the papacy is trying to make sure it has control over who's going to be ruler when at the pinch points of politics. And there are other papal banners at this time, too, which papacy used to try and promote the causes it saw as being within its interest or within within its its broader objectives. Mm -hmm. You've also got this phenomenon of the um, Milites Beati Petri or the Knights of St. Peter, which is a sort of... A quasi title that was awarded to secular to secular rulers in any cases who supported the reform agenda. Mm-hmm. And so the papacy is interested in controlling too strong a word, steering is probably about right. Yeah. It's trying to steer and act as and adopt a leadership role for Christendom as a whole. Yeah, and we can yeah, we can see that, can't we? Repeatedly. Right, so there we go. That's the case in favour of the argument that personal political ambition really was the main reason that Urban II called the First Crusade in 1095. As Nick has so effectively laid out for us, one, political ambition might be seen in his passionate advocacy of the papal reform movement, an initiative that sought to reaffirm and enhance the Pope's authority both within the Church by asserting control over clerical behaviour and also extending the Pope's authority beyond it by limiting the rights of kings and counts to appoint their own bishops and archbishops. Two, Urban II did indeed act forcefully and decisively to counteract the claim to authority of Henry IV's anti-Pope, Clement III, having him expelled from Rome and moving into the Lateran Palace himself in 1094, thereby consolidating his own singular personal primacy within the Western Church. Three, Urban's year-long tour of France might also be seen as a grand piece of political theatre, as Urban toured from town to town in a carefully stage-managed procession designed to project his status across the West far more broadly than any Pope had been able to do in half a century. Four, the huge gamble Urban took in launching his crusade might indicate a dogged determination to demonstrate his capability to summon tens of thousands from across huge swathes of territory, something no secular leader could even hope to emulate. And five, Urban's political ambition might be said to be present in his repeated attempts to steer, as Nick put it, secular leaders' behaviour, for example, by continuing to support and promote informal movements such as the Fideli Sancti Petri. But Nick! As an esteemed academic and a renowned expert in your field, you will be more than well aware that every historian's favourite word is... 
Um, this time I'm going to go for the word perspectives. An excellent choice. Okay. It's now time to consider the evidence against. So, Nick, let's have a look more closely at these claims of political ambition. I mean, come on, are we being a little cynical here? Uh, couldn't there be an altruistic reason for supporting the reform movement, for wanting to purify the clergy and improve their calibre and limit lay investiture? It depends how you define altruism, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Because most of the things Urban was trying to achieve were very much in the mainstream of, what, of where the church saw its interests at the time. The church wanted to rebuild relations with the Byzantine church. The church wanted to end infighting in France. The church wanted to reform behaviour generally across Western Christendom. And yes, the church also wanted to try and achieve the um, control over Jerusalem and indeed to support pilgrims going there and local Christian communities as well. So when it comes to whether we should be cynical or not, in fact, most of Urban's motives actually fit very neatly within what the church was trying to achieve at the time. Yep. And uh, so all these accusations of political ambition uh, could just be misinterpretations of the fact that he was genuinely trying to do his best uh, for the papacy, for the church, and for Christendom more broadly. Here, I mean, with, with this, the crucial thing is to understand the context. I mean, it's not a question of what we consider to be altruistic or what we consider to be selfish. We need to consider it from, from, the, from the perspective of the interests of the time. What were people trying to achieve at the time? Yeah. The closest I can come to to a selfish motive for Urban at the time is whether he was trying to um, see off his challenger for the papal throne. But even here, he was representative of the reform agenda, just as the anti-pope was representative of the imperial agenda. Yep. And so even seeing off his rival was still very much in the slipstream of the reform agenda of Urban and his predecessors. And so there you go. That's the case against the argument that political ambition was the main reason Urban II called the First Crusade in 1095. As Nick has highlighted beautifully for us, one, most of the things Urban was trying to achieve which might be accused of being political in their motivation, increased control of the clergy, increased influence over the secular lords of Europe, the reclamation of Jerusalem, were actually perfectly in line with the reform papacy's spiritual agenda at the time. They can just as easily be labelled as religiously motivated. And two, even asserting his primacy over Clement III, which might seem to be the actions of a man determined to acquire and to hold as much sway as possible, can actually be seen as yet another means of advancing the reform papacy's spiritual mission to reform and revivify the religiosity of the West. Right, that's it, dear listener. Nick, thank you once again for that excellent discussion of the role played this time by political ambition in Urban's decision to call his first crusade. We'll see you again in the next episode, which will explore the part played by Urban's own religious conviction. But that's it for now. I've been Ken, and this is Teach Medieval.